Welcome to the review of Democracy, the journal of the CEU Democracy Institute, where we discuss some of the most exciting new publications concerning the past, present, and future of democracies across the globe. I am Ferenc Lotso. I'll be your host, and it is a special pleasure to be discussing with Samuel Moyne today. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thanks for having me back. Great to have you at the Review of Democracy. Samuel Moyne is Chancellor Kent, Professor of Law and History at Yale University, and he was actually kind enough to discuss his previous book, Humane, with us some two years ago, and we are thrilled to have him back on the show today. Sam Moyne has a fascinating new book out this year, Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times, which will be the main subject of our conversation today. And now in this new book, you survey principal Cold War liberal thinkers, Sam, such as Hannah Arendt, Isaiah Berlin, Gertrude Himmelfarb, uh, Karl Popper, Lionel Trilling, and you assess what you call their betrayal of liberalism. Uh, due to some of her incisive writings, you say that Judith Sklar, whom you study uh, in the book's very first chapter, has been the muse uh, of this new book. So an obvious place to start our conversation might be to ask what shape that Cold War liberal betrayal took and why did you decide to study that betrayal in such fine detail? Well, it's a wonderful question, um, but I'm not sure how easy it is to answer because it's very hard for authors to know why they've written books by the time they come out. Uh, I do remember clearly that I was asked to give a series of lectures at the University of Oxford, which I, I delivered last January and February. And the tradition of that series is is often that you survey a series of thinkers. And so I decided I wanted to say something about the historiography of liberalism through these lectures and these character studies. And really, I think the the main goal came about through a juxtaposition in my mind of a kind of popular debate, especially in my country since Donald Trump was elected in 2016, and then a kind of parallel professional literature about liberalism. So the popular debate was really kicked off by just the accident that the political scientist Patrick Deneen published a book called Why Liberalism Failed just before Trump was elected. And this coincidence vaulted Deneen's book into the center of debate around Trump, which, which it felt like a kind of, you know, four-year referendum on the fate of liberalism. Sometimes People said it was about democracy. I think it was actually about liberalism. And so Deneen said certain things. First, he claimed liberalism emerged out of the ruins of the Middle Ages uh, in a kind of standard Roman Catholic narrative uh, with John Locke, a kind of first liberal or early liberal. And he 
treated liberalism as if it were a kind of take it or leave it package. In, indeed, I mean, there was almost a kind of Marxist framework in this right wing thinking because the idea was almost that like the degradation of liberalism starting all those centuries ago was inevitable. Uh, and as if there weren't big choices along the way. And I juxtapose this kind of debate about liberalism, which actually Deneen controlled in the sense that many of those who defended liberalism accepted that it, it originated five centuries ago and was a take it or leave it package, which they took, even if Deneen left it. And then I... I felt what was getting lost is what historians and political theorists were writing about in more obscure places, claiming that, well, John Locke didn't know about liberalism, uh, that the first liberals self-styled in the 19th century. Liberal parties are founded along the way in the later 19th century. And most of the leading liberal theoreticians didn't seem to map on to Deneen's presentation. And so I, I resolved to try to say something uh, kind of inspired by the recent literature, taking the story through the 20th century and try to bring a different account of liberalism to, to, to kind of answer Deneen in a different way. And so, First, there's a chronological difference, which is that I emphasize the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, but then there's a, the much bigger difference, which is that I don't regard the professional literature in which I'm trying to participate and vulgarize as thinking of liberalism as all one thing. Uh, it's come in many versions, most of them are unrecognizable in these stories pro or con about liberalism that have preoccupied American debate, maybe broader debate. And even more than disaggregating liberalism, I wanted to claim there was one moment when liberals changed their tradition a very great deal, maybe beyond recognition. And it was in the middle of the 20th century in connection with what I call Cold War liberalism and try to illustrate through these various thinkers. And, and the main upshot, I think, I mean, you, you agree or disagree, is that what many aspects of what Deneen took himself to be attacking are actually the product of this recent mutation in liberalism. And it follows that there are resources in liberalism in the 19th century notably what I call its perfectionist outlook and its progressivist outlook that we could save, not as if there's some perfect liberalism to revive before Cold War liberalism, but that there are resources in it that may allow us to give liberalism another chance, but it wouldn't be a matter of just defending it from its critics. It would be a matter of, you know, conceding some of their arguments, tapping the lost resources that are in liberal traditions and, you know, inventing new traditions where needed. Uh, great. Thank you so much for that. 
Uh, it is indeed uh, a series of portraits uh, that this book offers of Cold War liberals. And the first half examines their anti-canon more specifically, the counterexamples uh, to avoid uh, that, as you very much argue in the book, are of supreme relevance uh, to define and stabilize traditions. And you show in detail here, and I'm quoting, that the Enlightenment was only the annunciation of a liberating tradition that led from Jean-Jacques Rousseau through the French Revolution to German idealism, which also became the best sources of the best forms of liberalism. End of quote. And you then briefly state, which really struck me, that most is at stake in what befell Hegel when this uh, new kind of anti-canon was uh, created. So first of all, why would you say that those traditions are some of the best sources of the best forms of liberalism? And why do you consider the reappraisals of Hegel's thought so crucially important? So let me just begin with a, a prefatory comment about the kind of methodological commitments of the book, because one of the great kind of professional historians of liberalism, as I see it, uh, is a Cambridge Don Duncan Bell, who wrote a, a classic article some years ago called What is Liberalism? He's the one who I think first emphasized that it was only in the 20th century that John Locke was retroactively made a liberal. Um, and he therefore, I think, highlighted the, the use of thinking about the, the liberal canon, who liberals see as their main uh, founding fathers and mothers and who they read and don't read. And so in these lectures, I decided I would kind of follow suit because it turned out that um, the Cold War liberals weren't much interested in, you know, early modern thought, not just John Locke, but others. They were obsessed by uh, a series of, I think, you know, what I call anti-canonical culprits, ultimately for fascism and communism, that really begin in the Enlightenment and proceed especially through Jean-Jacques Rousseau into the French Revolution and, and kind of culminate in GWF Hegel, and you mentioned Anne Karl Marx, who I think, you know, I try to suggest briefly was a, you know, like Hegel, a considerable inspiration for the development of liberalism in the 19th century in a kind of friendly uh, sparring match about how to think about freedom and equality. So what I try to do in the book is, is look at how in the Cold War, what had been resources for liberals, the Enlightenment, Rousseau, the French Revolution, which really inspired the liberal movement. Uh, and then after the French Revolution, Hegel and Marx were purged by Cold War liberalism and treated not as uh, resources, but as the recipe for 20th century totalitarianism. And they ended up with a liberalism that was basically defined around um, freedom in private from the community and the state. I think it, it was not exactly the same as the neoliberal view of the same rough era in the middle of the 20th century, Friedrich Hayek, et cetera, that um, markets should not brook interference from the state, but it was, let's say, close enough. Uh, and so I suggest that this purgation of these earlier resources 
kind of left liberals in a very problematic situation. Uh, and if we're interested in why Cold War liberalism devolves into neoliberal theory and practice in our time, my suggestion is that it it the Cold War liberals exposed uh, liberalism to you know some some of this later degradation degradation, which doesn't mean that the Cold War liberals were neoliberals, just that they you know mutated their tradition to make it easy prey. So what would what a different liberalism look like? Um, Hegel wasn't a liberal on most accounts, including mine, but I think most liberals in the 19th century were Hegelians in the sense that they thought they were the endpoint of a history of the emergence of freedom and equality of all people. And the challenge was then the, the institutionalization of that freedom and equality uh, in some political form and in, in what Hegel called a state. And this was not a one-time event. It was a historical process uh, to bring about a free community of equals. And liberals, uh, for better, I think sometimes for worse, for example, in their imperialism, adopted this kind of historicist set of ideas about government as an incubator agent outcome, but also kind of um, tool of the historical emergence of freedom and equality, ultimately on a mass scale. So the, these seem to me really important ideas. Um, there was a, you know, a very prominent Hegelian liberal around in 1989, Francis Fukuyama, who said, you know, as a kind of right-wing Hegelian that 1989 proved the end of history. But it struck, struck me that most liberals before the Cold War had been, you know, left-wing Hegelians. They were expectant about a future that had not yet come about, and it was their role to help bring universal freedom and equality about, of course, you know, making many mistakes. But what the Cold War liberals did by losing the relationship of, of liberalism to emancipation, mainly out of fear of the Soviet Union, was, I, I think, um, dreadful, make even worse than any mistakes that earlier liberals made, because it really cut off liberals from what I see as our, you know, our, our task now, even today, which is to think about where we stand in the emergence of universal emancipation and to use government and the organization of civil society to realize those things institutionally of what, you know, a process at which we're still nearer the beginning than the end. Uh, fascinating. Now, the book doesn't only study what Cold War liberals purged from their canon, but also talks about some of their major silences. And you say that these silences, in fact, speak volumes about the deepest meaning of this form of liberalism. You point, for example, to the rather curious fact that even though liberals around the world were building the most ambitious and interventionist liberal states that had ever existed around this time, nothing in our canon of political thought when it comes to uh, Cold War liberals 
really survive to celebrate, to explain or to justify the emergence of this kind of new liberal state. And then you also write, and that's uh, another quotation here, that in retrospect, the perhaps most amazing and neglected fact about Cold War liberal political thought is that while centered on freedom, it passed over its globalization in silence, except to worry that decolonization was a road to serfdom and terror. So could I ask you to speak more about those two really striking silences? What do they reveal to you? And how might we be able to account for the reasons behind them? Well, so, you know, in fairness, I think we ought to be empathetic to Cold War liberals who lived through the 1930s and often formed their views before World War II and then lived through World War II um, and, you know, were were present at the at the time of the crystallization of the Cold War. And it was easy to think that the old liberal views about progress and the state missed something important because it's only fair that they didn't anticipate that the totalitarian state, the the very possibility that the Soviet Union could claim to be in the vanguard of freedom and equality, science and progress. Uh, and yet I think the Cold War liberals overreacted. Uh, and so if you read their work, the, it's libertarian in content. Uh, now, some apologists for these figures like um, Isaiah Berlin or Karl Popper, an, a very notable one in our day is Jan Werner Müller, have said, well, they were effectively social democrats. They, they just didn't write about it. Um, they were concerned by the Soviet Union, and so they wrote about freedom. But my rejoinder is first that they they cut out of their tradition all of the you know intellectual authority for the kinds of welfare states that Mueller says that the Cold War liberals were effectively interested in endorsing. So that's the story about Rousseau through Hegel. But then I I just think it's a remarkable fact, as you mentioned, that you know, we teach liberalism in these colleges and universities, and we teach John Locke, and we teach John Stuart Mill, and some people teach Isaiah Berlin. But if one were to look for a canonical statement from the middle of the 20th century that provided a defense or a vision of what, what liberals were actually doing at the time, not neoliberalism, but social democracy and welfare states, there isn't one. There isn't a widely assigned one. So this, I think, is a mistake um, that I, I think is worth dwelling on because we're not able to point exactly to a liberalism in theory that matches really the, the kind of high achievements uh, that liberals in practice were making. Now, you know, sometimes, you know, you might want to put it by saying liberal theorists abandoned Hegelianism before liberal practitioners and politicians. It was also true that, you know, liberal theorists like Berlin and Popper were responding just in the way that liberal politicians and practitioners were to, you know, communism and the threat 
of the Soviet Union. They just responded in different ways. You know, the Cold War liberals defended freedom in theory. I, I think the politicians at the time knew that wasn't going to be enough. And so they they bargained with the working class to ensure they wouldn't revolt uh, and and gave some, gave them some perquisites. That's one reason I would never argue for, you know, just theorizing the mid-century welfare state as if it's the right answer now, because, you know, in a way, it wasn't a very Hegelian project. It was a Machiavellian project about saving capitalism, tweaking it to avoid its overthrow uh, by the mobilized working classes of the time. Then we get to the global stage, which you also ask about. And, you know, I was trained in an extremely Eurocentric uh, European intellectual history, and I'm not far beyond that training. This book is about, you know, a series of white thinkers. Some are women, half are women, but um, it's my own canon in this book is Anglophone, um, you know, elite thinkers. So I'm not trying to pull rank on the Cold War liberals, but it does strike me that it is amazing that they live through decolonization and essentially don't mention it. They don't really have anything to say about it. And there, I think we get into some difficult problems because, you know, it would be conventional to say that 19th century liberals, precisely because of their ambition and historicism, embraced imperialism as their way of globalizing liberal values, you know, which was highly ideological, you know, involved postponing freedom for most of the world, precisely on the grounds that it had to be prepared by uh, metropolitan liberals ruling the world. Um, but, you know, what I argue is that it seems like Cold War liberals did something, I think, even worse or more, more debatable because their mistake was, in a sense, to abandon hope in global freedom. Um, they, they wanted to shelter the kind of liberty that Isaiah Berlin talks about and lionizes as negative liberty in the developed world. I'm sure that Berlin hoped to see the end of communism, but it's I doubt he believed it would ever happen. And when it comes to the whole rest of the world, it's hard to see any place in his or others' works where they think that non-white peoples, even once they've acquired their own states, can, can be free. And so I, I look especially to Hannah Arendt in the book, who I don't think was a Cold War liberal, but helps us maybe understand just the kind of racialized skepticism about the eligibility of certain kinds of people for freedom that the Cold War liberals had. And I just conclude by saying I, I wanted to do that because it, it just seems to me we can't talk about European intellectuals anymore in the 20th century without taking seriously how they relate to the whole world of peoples um, thinking about their global projects and the implications for global politics of Cold War liberalism, which is is really not something that is much discussed in the literature on on this phenomenon. 
So the book shows not only how the Cold War transformed liberalism beyond recognition, reinventing it uh, on the new foundation of abstract normativity, anti-utopian realism, anti-dogmatic skepticism or Augustinian sin, or even an aggressive death drive. You also show uh, through this that, in fact, there has been some kind of a capitulation uh, to conservatism, to more libertarian forms of liberalism. And as you mentioned a couple of times earlier, much of this had to do with anxieties over Marxist and Soviet appropriations, right? So would, would it be fair to portray Cold War liberalism as chiefly the result of a reaction and as, as we might say, an overreaction to the rise of Marxism? and Soviet efforts at canon building? I, I think that's what I try to argue. I, I, I wouldn't say Marxism because as far as I can see, the historical appearance of Marxism as a theory uh, didn't change liberalism so much as the victory of the Soviet Union in World War II. I mean, one thing I try to show is that liberals to a degree, were inspired by Marxism to kind of make liberalism more credible in the 19th and early 20th centuries without that provocation, especially Marx's claim that formal freedom is not freedom, very Hegelian perspective, then we wouldn't have the kinds of liberalism that emerge in the 20th century. More than that, you know, the initial era of the Russian Revolution and the Soviet Union elicits a lot of kind of interest and even sympathy from liberals. So something happens later. We could, you know, debate exactly when. So I I, I do think though that, you know, that caveat aside, um, what happens is that there's this purgation of the spirit of of earlier liberalism and and the invention of a new one and just to continue the the story we talked about earlier i mean there were new canonical sources i argue that um liberals substituted for the old ones of rousseau and the french revolution and hegel and marx uh one one such source was neo-orthodox religion uh, especially Christianity, and I devote a chapter to the revival of Lord Acton, uh, who had been pretty peripheral among liberals in the 19th century, but became absolutely central to Cold War liberalism. And then I, I also try to show that some liberals like Lionel Trilling canonized Sigmund Freud as a kind of secular uh, interpreter of human sin uh, and both of these ideas, you know, aggression and the Freudian case and sin and the neo-Orthodox one are about how expectations of universal freedom and equality are mainly going to mislead us. But if that's what their view was, it comes closer to historic conservatism or even reaction than to liberalism as, as it was initially envisioned by you know, John Stuart Mill, Alexis de Tocqueville, et cetera. So that's the basic argument of the book. Now, there's there's a little bit of dispute I have to engage in um, with a great 
literary critic of our day named Amanda Anderson, as well as Judith Schlar herself, who, whom I otherwise try to rehabilitate, because they think that many of the seeds of Cold War liberalism, including its anxiety about revolution and its connivance with conservatism and reaction, actually are congenital. Um, and there's certain amount of truth to that. But I think that the life story and, and politics of someone like Trilling showed just how much the Cold War liberals insisted they had to break with the earlier liberal past. So uh, I don't want to deny that there are continuities, that Cold War liberalism exacerbates things that had on occasion appeared in uh, liberalism before, but it's mainly a story of break or discontinuity, which leaves a lot of prior liberalism behind in this kind of overreaction, as I think you rightly called it. I wish just to also talk about something that may be seen as a rather minor point in this book, but I think there's really a very large story behind it. You write at one point that the assumption that history is a forum of opportunity for individual and collective agency and self-assertion has undeniable roots in Christian belief and practice. What has always been at stake is whether liberals ever did, or whether we can today credibly render that idea in secular terms. So could I ask you to perhaps comment on that idea of a secular rendering? and how you view liberal attempts at it? Well, you know, I, it, it seems to me hard to deny that modernity is an outcome of Christianity in some way. And there's an immense debate about how to tell that story. I mean, the someone like Deneen would, would say that, you know, some, some evil subversive men prevailed upon Christians to give up Christianity. Uh, and uh, I, I think there's a, a more complicated story. You know, I'm very partial to, you know, those thinkers like Hans Blumenberg or Karl Lewitt, whatever their, you know, very substantial differences on this question. They, they wanted to see some, some kind of series of events that led to the precipitation of modernity out of a Christian worldview. And it's really no accident that the first liberals, Benjamin Constant, Tocqueville, whom I've mentioned, really do see liberalism as coming out of the last stage of Christianity. That was Hegel's view about his philosophy, that he was secularizing Christianity. Now, from a certain perspective, you might ask whether that's viable. I mean, whether it's ever going to be possible to um, produce a kind of credible theory of emancipation for all all people in in modernity around the world when it's when the origins of the theory are in a a local partisan faith tradition. But I, as far as I can see, there's no alternative. Um, it's not as if there's some way to get outside the post-Christian era in which we're living. And so, as I see it, the task which liberals long-shouldered before the Cold War was to adopt Christian emancipation, you know, about the truth 
about our situation setting us free. But instead of seeing it as a, a religious commitment, to see it as a commitment in which we learn about who we really are. Uh, and so that's, you know, nothing wrong with that view. It, it's very hard to kind of, you know, vindicate through argument. Hegel tried, many others have tried. So um, it's a passing comment, but it's really important because I'm not at all suggesting that in turning to neo-Orthodox Christianity, the Cold War liberals were doing something like erroneous in itself, because this is really a big debate uh, within Christianity. In a way, earlier liberals were more on the what we call the Pelagian side. Uh, with an optimistic anthropology and Cold War liberals were more on the Augustinian side. And I mean, it would be interesting to discover that, you know, for all of its secularity, even 20th, 21st century debate is all within the terms of Christianity. But um, maybe it's not. Maybe, you know, there's a way of taking those options that we receive from Christianity and definitely cropped up again in liberalism and making them philosophically credible. My role as a historian is not to kind of do that work. I couldn't. Uh, but, you know, people do. Uh, and people do try to think about how they can make liberalism credible to all comers who don't like participate in some religious mythology through upbringing or choice. I mean, a, another parallel to this is the, de, you know, current debate about John Rawls's thought, which we now understand much better itself emerged out of certain Christian commitments and people say various things about it. Eric Nelson's book, The Theology of Liberalism, is about how once we understand Rawls as a Christian, his project collapses intellectually. I mean, I don't think that argument works, but it does suggest that in these arguments about liberalism, we have to be very honest that we're in operating in the aftermath of Christianity at best, at worst, still within its terms. Fantastic. Now, another fascinating point in the book is where you explain that understandings of Cold War liberalism as a tradition that has specifically Jewish sources have always been exaggerated. And in fact, there are very few uh, good reasons uh, to emphasize uh, that aspect of these thinkers so much. But you also diagnose a kind of Zionist exception uh, in the thinking of several of your uh, protagonists, uh, most powerfully uh, in the chapter on Hannah Arendt, uh, which is a very complex chapter. In some sense, I think it's very critical of her. Uh, you also have a somewhat polemical take on her Zionism. So I wanted to ask you a bit about those two points uh, in conjunction, right? So their thinking didn't really have Jewish sources. They made a Zionist exception. How to think about these two things at once? Well, you know, surprisingly, given what I've just said about, you know, the legacy of Christianity, that essentially all of the Cold War liberals as thinkers were, were Jewish thinkers. Uh, so there has to be something to say about this. And I would say most of those who have commented on this fact have, have let's say, chosen to Judaize uh, Cold War liberalism in one of two ways. One is to, you know, claim that Jews as Jews have special insight into politics or something like that, or 
or sometimes they've appealed to kind of the kind of specific experience of Jews uh, living exile and expulsion and said people in that situation would kind of naturally or expectably come to Cold War liberal views, suspicious of the government, uh, most concerned about its collapse, not, you know, it's, it's kind of vindication of freedom and equality, but it's just keeping people alive. Um, so I, I, I sort of reject those views, which strike me as, as not very kind of consistent with the sources. They really reflect kind of more recent, if I may, like Jewish identity politics of people who um, want to, you know, claim these thinkers for their own people. Um, I do think, you know, there's some, there's something to say about the Jewish connection, but it's really more thinking about the state of Israel. So, I mean, the truth is that, you know, there were Jewish conservatives, there were Jewish liberals, there were Jewish leftists. Um, it doesn't seem to me that a Jewish background, especially since most of these figures knew nothing about Judaism itself, is all that determinative, nor is the experience of exile and expulsion, um, which can lead in so many different directions uh, and did lead people to the right, led people to the left, not just to Cold War liberalism. There is this interesting fact that Cold War liberals, in spite of their silence about decolonization, were very fervent Zionists. So uh, I think it's just a, a staggering fact that Isaiah Berlin essentially didn't mention decolonization, including when his own country, the United Kingdom, was fighting wars of decolonization, but did allow that Israel was a kind of decolonization moment for the Jews themselves. And the question I, I try to raise is, well, how could these liberals um, support not just emancipation, but national emancipation, violent national emancipation, because the founding of Israel and its self-defense required guns and violence. Uh, and I reached the conclusion that they, they preserve some aspects of earlier liberalism uh, for the Jews in the Middle East. And this is revealing to me because it shows that even they could, in a sense, embrace the very form of liberalism they were rejecting with its nationalism and at times violence, realization of a, you know, com freedom and equality in and through a state, um, at least one, one place. And then the question becomes, well, why would they not be Hegelians of that sort everywhere uh, and for all peoples? So uh, this is what I try to argue, that we should really shift the conversation about the Cold War liberals from the fact of their Jewish backgrounds and more to this puzzle about their selectivity in their Zionist commitments. No, that is indeed a very puzzling aspect of, of the story you're, you're reconstructing. 
Uh, you also state towards the end of the book that one of the main motivations for writing it had to do with the weakness of liberal self-reflection and liberal self-critique. Uh, as Donald Trump was uh, coming to power in the US, uh, liberals in a way reasserted uh, how much they've been right uh, all along. Uh, and uh, in that sense, you, you felt that there was really a need to re-examine the dominant form uh, that liberalism took in your own lifetime, that is to say, Cold War liberalism, but also all its heirs uh, since uh, 1991 or so. So could I ask you why you think the liberal establishment has proven so alien to self-examination in more recent decades? That's a, a citation from uh, Pankaj Mishra. Uh, why have they not been able to perform uh, this kind of self-reflection and self-critique? Well, the, the first and most obvious reason is that they survived the Cold War and their enemies did not. Uh, so, it, you know, I think we now understand if, you know, we read books like uh, Fritz Bartel's The Triumph of Broken Promises that, you know, the Cold War begins in comparative promises of welfare, which governments on both sides of the Iron Curtain are making to their citizens, but it ends in, you know, austerity and neoliberalism. And it's just that the Eastern Bloc states could not sustain austerity as long as the Western governments have done, uh, and so collapsed. Uh, and sadly, liberals in 1989 took this as an occasion for just you know, self-congratulation rather than reflecting on, you know, the toll of their own policies, um, especially neoliberal policies. And, you know, Cold War liberalism was just the kind of, let's say, triumphalist face of the neoliberal order that liberals institutionalized many other places after 1989. And, and then, of course, I think the, I don't dwell much on this, but a big part of the legacy of, of this kind of false dawn uh, of 1989 is that, you know, new Cold Wars were kind of fought out of nostalgia's sake um, against alleged enemies of freedom, you know, barbarians at the gate, terrorists, whomever. Um, externalizing any kind of serious reckoning with the limitations of Cold War liberalism. In the end, of course, the enemies turned out to be at home in so many of these places, you know, new liberal democracies like Hungary, old ones, you know, like mine, although it's not that old since, you know, it was an apartheid state until just a few decades ago. So, you know, I, I, I do think that there was a kind of, you know, my lifetime is a kind of mistake, you know, based on inferences about the what kind of liberalism kind of should follow 1989 to 91. And we're I think we're living with the outcome of that mistake. So the book, you know, not to be too grand about it, just says maybe instead of constantly finding new enemies abroad or at home uh, or, you know, patting oneself on the back, we should go back to this 19th century project where we have barely begun to institutionalize freedom and equality anywhere, let alone on 
a world stage, the stage of history that Hegel held out as, you know, the the forum of the spirit, as he labeled it. Mm -hmm. Right, right. I mean, that's a strong statement about the mistake of our own lifetime. But are there perhaps uh, promising examples of reinvention you would care to highlight? Uh, what are some of the changes you think would be badly needed at the moment to actually make liberalism credible enough for salvation, as you write in the book? Well, that would be, a, you know, another project, and I wish I could execute it right now. But I mean, as far as I can see, I mean, there is a kind of initially at least some kind of confrontation with you know, austerity and neoliberalism, at the very least to go back to the kind of order that welfare states featured with, you know, a, a more credible freedom for all, because it's more egalitarian in its, in its, its kind of class structure. I mean, I think that, as I said earlier, this is not at all a, a brief for reviving welfare states, which, you know, declined for a reason. Um, so, you know, vaguely, then the challenge would be to think about how to institutionalize freedom and equality. Um, I'd say, you know, it's um, these 19th century liberals really did think institutionally. I mean, they believed that, you know, liberals had to be pedagogues and we needed educational institutions and much more generally, I would say, institutions about kind of human capacity, making it possible for people to be free and for them to, you know, shoulder the burden of their freedom rather than throw it away. So this this would be pretty vague, I admit, but um, it, it does seem like a, a completely different project than saying, you know, liberty is against the state and uh, self-realization is, you know, incipiently totalitarian. Great. Thank you so much for that. That's a very intriguing and thought-provoking response. And thank you for the entire conversation today, Sam. Thank you. The pleasure has been all mine. I have been discussing with Samuel Moy today, whose exciting new book, Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Time, gets published at the end of August. I hope you have enjoyed our conversation about it. Until the next conversation here at the Review of Democracy.